0: Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems, for their support of this series.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Caitlin. I just wanted to give you a quick update. So, sadly, Lindsay has actually left CSIS. She's now pursuing emerging technology policymaking from a front seat inside the government. You can catch up with her on LinkedIn or Twitter. Now, because we have really busy schedules and so do our awesome guests, we actually pre-record a lot of these episodes. So if you hear Lindsay reference a project she's working on or a report she's doing for CSIS, just know that this could have been recorded a couple weeks ago.
0: Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSAS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program.
1: And I'm Caitlin Johnson, deputy director and fellow with the Aerospace Security Project.
0: On this week's episode, we are talking all about software acquisition. This week, we are here to talk about all things software acquisition and digital modernization. To quote the Defense Innovation Board software acquisition and practices study, software is ubiquitous and U.S. national security relies on software. Every person in the Department of Defense touches software in some way, all the way from the 8 million lines of code powering the F-35 to everybody in the morning pinging a server to check their email first thing when they get to work. However, despite the criticality of software to the Department of Defense, we're still struggling to acquire, develop, deploy software across the enterprise and are in the midst of a years-long effort to digitally modernize the department and adapt our acquisition practices to the needs of software. So here to discuss all of these issues with us are two terrific guests. We have Enrique Ode, the Chief Technology Officer at Second Front Systems.
2: Hey, how's it going? Great to be with you today.
0: And we also have Courtney Barno, who was most recently the Director of Research and Analysis for the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Hi there, great to be here, thanks for having us. Well, let's just dive in. I'm gonna turn to you first, Enrique, because you have been a leading voice on software modernization throughout your career in the Air Force, but really culminating in your role as the founder and commander of the Air Force Kessel Run. So can you give us just a quick intro to this topic area? How and why does the DoD struggle to acquire software?
2: Yeah, that's a very easy question to start off a podcast. That, there are so many facets to that. But I think at the end of the day, you know, when we started, actually the Defense Innovation Unit is kind of where some of these ideas came out of. And then we, as we moved into Kessel Run, A lot of these ideas about changing the software in the DoD, it came about under this idea of education, which is one of the reasons we don't buy high quality software in the DoD is that people in the department do not understand software well enough to make good decisions about it. Whether that's the acquisition workforce, whether that's your contracting team, whether that's the operators uh, who get pitches from companies all the time. I think what it really comes down to is a level of education about how software is built and what good quality software looks like from a technical perspective or from a design perspective. And so when you kind of look at the defense innovation unit and the founding of Kessel Run, it really was this understanding of we should know how to build software ourselves so we can make better decisions when we buy software.
0: Well, as Caitlin knows, we only ask hard questions here on Tech Unmanned. We would not be here if there were easy questions. So, Courtney, I think we'll turn to you next. So you supported the Defense Innovation Board's SWAP study or Software Acquisition and Practices study, which is a play on another DoD acronym, size, weight, and power. And then after that, you went on to support the NSCAI which provided a variety of research and analysis and recommendations related to software acquisition and digital modernization. So you've been in this for a few years. So how has the landscape changed since the swap study in 2019? Are we making progress? What are the big sticking points we've yet to tackle?
3: I think Enrique did a, a wonderful job of of kind of starting at the beginning with this with this education piece. So much of this stems out of knowing that there is so much that we don't know within the Department of Defense on how to do modern software securely, effectively, and at speed. Right. There's so much that commercial industry is is ahead of the federal government on in that regard. And there was really an effort, I think, starting. You know, really, the catalyst three years ago with this Defense Innovation Board study to, to bring some of those best practices inside, and it really stemmed to Enrique's point from this education. But I think over the past few years, you know, we have we have seen a lot of progress. I think starting maybe on the the wonky side of things with the acquisition system writ large, um, which the Defense Innovation Board identified as a primary impediment to these more agile, modern, commercial style methodologies for development. The department's done a lot of significant work in the past three years to really demystify the acquisition system. I think in particular, something to highlight is their rollout of the adaptive acquisition framework. And that AAF, adaptive acquisition framework, as they call it, includes a software acquisition pathway. And this pathway was recommended by the Defense Innovation Board and then authorized by Congress in the 2020 NDAA. That in itself has been a tremendous step forward. There's also been a variety of pilot programs leveraging the software acquisition pathway within DoD really as a mechanism to support their entry into using more agile methodologies for develop, you know, a focus on the end user, frequent capability, deployment, delivery, a lot more frequent than we've seen previously in the DoD realm, and an approach to managing requirements that looks a lot less like traditional DoD requirements management with a pre-specified set of wickets that we're trying to hit throughout the life cycle, and more like general capability statements and allowing software teams to really get after delivering capabilities to to enable those. You know, I I see three major areas where we still need a good amount of growth and progress, and Enrique hit on the first one. The, The first is really workforce development. You know, there's been a lot of work over the past few years in terms of rolling out new education programs through the Defense Acquisition University, different affiliate programs, innovation networks that are providing resources to acquisition professionals, including program managers, contracting officers on software. But we still haven't really increased the technical literacy of the overall force to the place where we need to be to really evaluate what's working and what's not from a software perspective. And I think the second real opportunity area is really security and accreditation. And I think on a security and accreditation in particular – you know we're still trying to get out of a traditional assurance paradigm that focuses more on checklist compliance with a set of controls and really can be viewed as a bolt on to cyber process at the end of the dev life cycle where we need to be and where we need to move to is a continuous assurance based on automated scanning and monitoring and declarative configuration and there's been a few places in the department i think the air force's platform one among others that have figured out how to achieve continuous authority to operate based on authorization for the environment, the dev pipeline, and security baked into that pipeline. And we absolutely need to scale those approaches. And I know Enrique has been very active in that space as well.
2: Uh, I would like to double tap on the security accreditation. Obviously, for me, that's a huge passion. When you kind of look at the entire process of what it takes to build software, there's you know the, the big R requirements up front to define what the software is. Then you start getting into this entire budget cycle, then you get into a contracting cycle, and then you get into the smaller requirements to specify the technical details. And only later down the road, do you get into engineering. You know, This is the traditional path of software development. And at the very end of all this multi-year effort, you do a security accreditation based off of a NIST framework. And, it's a, and it is a checklist, it's an Excel spreadsheet, it's a checklist. And so when we stood up Kessel Run, that was actually the first thing we tackled. It was the security and accreditation piece, because no matter how fast you go in the early part, if it's a one year delay at the end or an 18 month delay, you see with like FedRAMP, then it's pointless that you did agile development or you did DevOps if you can't deploy into production. And so, as I look at security and, and accreditation, I, I agree. I think the Air Force has done fantastic work moving down that path of moving towards continuous monitoring and code scanning, basically using technology to check technology. And I know the, the Army's going there as well. Paul Puckett, fantastic leader over in the Army, I know he's really pushing for this. But as I talk to organizations around the DoD, because I get called a lot saying, hey, we want to set up a software factory, help me set up a software factory. And it's great, and I can talk about DevOps, and I talk about all the tooling. But in many cases, we can't get organizations past their preconceived notions about doing risk management framework and traditional accreditation practices. And what happens is, as an organization starts doing software development, but then they get trapped with the accreditation process, They kind of abandon the idea of Agile software development because they're not seeing the benefits of it. And this is something, again, it goes to the education piece. You can't do DevOps and you can't do Agile if your security is not also Agile. And we have not broken this paradigm in most of the Department of Defense. Again, there's some great shining examples, Black Pearl over in the Navy, a bunch of different Air Force programs, the software factory in the Army. But writ large, we haven't broken the paradigm and so people can't actually take advantage of all these great things that the SWAP study said to do. Or that other organizations have done already
1: okay maybe you guys can just help me out a bit on clearing up some of what seems to me to be very technical jargon that the three of you probably understand that i'm sitting here writing down asking questions about the dev pipeline devops what do you mean by accreditation and security when it comes to the software
2: yeah i'll be happy to kind of quickly explain that so when we use the term devops it's the idea that you have a strong integration between your software development and your IT operations. So it's the concept that as you're building code, it's not that you build code in a vacuum and then you hand it to someone else who runs a data center, you know that's more traditional. In the modern sense, there's a huge integration between your infrastructures and your platform and your software. So we talk about DevOps. It's a mindset of how you work as an organization that has actually evolved into some specific tooling that allow you to push software quickly with immutable infrastructure and code so that you know what you're pushing into production is what you actually were building. So that's kind of DevOps. But what DevOps allows is for a different mode of security in which you are actually scanning your code to look for vulnerabilities and then you're continuously monitoring that code, both in the development phases and the testing as well as once it's in production in the hands of the user. And so this continuous monitoring, continuous alerting is a new method of security that actually lets you mitigate risks Traditional though before these technologies existed the DoD and mandated by Congress came up with a, a thing something called risk management framework before that it was called DICAP which I'm not sure what DICAP actually stands for but as a way to mitigate in the past what the DoD's told organizations was look at NIST policies NIST frameworks you know 800-171 or 800-53 these are just policy guidance 100 pages long and they said If you implement what the NIST tells you to do, and you can run a checklist against it, then you can be accredited, which means you're allowed to run your software on a government network. And again, that was the only way to do it 10, 20 years ago when you didn't have the good quality tooling. But now that we have the tooling that allows us to go fast, a lot of organizations are still relying on this old model of filling out a spreadsheet hundreds of items long and taking a year to assess that you did the spreadsheet.
1: So when we're talking about timelines for the software development, you know, and comparing them to some of the other episodes that we've done previously where we're talking about physical hardware systems for emerging technologies, what are like, what is the timeline like? Sometimes we're talking, you know, five to 10 years when we're talking about a piece of hardware or a satellite, but it seems like software, you just said a year might be too slow.
2: So I'll tell you what it is right now. In the Department of Defense, traditional software development, and because this whole agile methodology has not caught on yet, traditional software development is still probably 8 to 10 years for software. There's no real difference between software and hardware because both of them go through the exact same systems engineering process of write your requirements, specify it, go to contracting, go to testing, go to security, go to production. So because they follow the same systems engineering methodology, traditionally, you've not seen much of a difference between software and hardware in the Department of Defense in terms of timelines. And this is really the impetus for this whole software revolution that you're going through now, advocated for by the Dib, advocated by Defense Digital Services, advocated Defense Innovation Unit. Under this new methodology, we've seen software go out to the field in as little as a few months. I know over at Kobayashi Maru out in Los Angeles, I know they've been able to push software from kind of idea to first use in the field in a period of about two months, I believe, is like the fastest they've gone. And again, it, it, the answer is always, it depends. The more complex a software, the longer it's going to take. But the idea is you get a minimally viable product, like a first iteration out to your user within a few months. And then you just keep iterating on that forever. That is really how modern software is built. And so we really should be thinking about it at timelines of, when is it finished? Because good software is never finished. We should be thinking in timelines of how fast can you get the first version out? And then how often can you put out a new version? Is that every day in some cases, every week? If you're starting to talk every quarter, you're probably talking too long. And that's what that. Is. So we need to be changing our mindset on how we measure time.
3: If I can add, Caitlin, to one thing here is, you know, I I think for for your listeners, I know you've hit on this in in some of your other episodes as well. What's really important here is this context of why. You know, what Enrique is hitting on a lot of is, is cycle time and speed, right? We need to get working capability out into the hands of users, start getting feedback as quickly as possible, right? Allows us to tighten our development cycles. We're able to get something that is a little bit closer to what they need with each iteration that we deliver. But why is this important? And I think Right now, why speed to capability delivery is critically important is because of the new era of warfighting that we're entering, right? Or, Or frankly, we're within is we are within a paradigm of software enabled warfare. And what that means is we have to now occupy a posture where we can integrate and accredit new software products into our systems as quickly as they are available. And so what we don't have is we don't have time on the back end to be doing bolt on risk management, security processes. We have to be continuously monitoring, continuously scanning as we're integrating these capabilities. The rate of innovation in software, in software-enabled systems like artificial intelligence systems, right? ML ops types of pipelines. These systems are evolving so fast and capabilities are coming to industry so fast. The Department of Defense, to maintain the competitive advantage against our adversaries, has to have the ability to take advantage of these as they come to market. And the only way to do that is to really get ourselves in a position where we can assess security continuously and do continuous integration. We can't still occupy these timelines that are two, three years, five years out by that point, the, the capabilities that we're accrediting are going to be obsolete. Our adversaries will have moved on.
1: So just to frame it, we are getting closer to the timelines in the private sector. DOD is moving from 5, to 8, 10 years to more along what the private sector does and how I get updates to my phone or to Microsoft on my computer, you know, overnight. And I come, you know, turn on my computer and it's like, oh, your computer has been updated.
2: I think, again, there's, there's pockets of excellence for software development in the Department of Defense. So in some of those pockets of excellence, I think you're getting there. Obviously, I came from Kessel Run. Kessel Run, some of our products we were updating, in some cases, once a day, sometimes a little more often. Most of them were a little slower, you know, once every few days. Uh, and there's other pockets of excellence like that with, you know, Space Camp and Kobe Maru, Platform One. But writ large in the DoD, I don't think we're there yet but we should be driving there. And eventually I'd love to see the DOT updating software at the speed of commercial companies of multiple times a day, hundreds of times a day in some cases. Uh, That's where we need to go. And I think Courtney nailed it right on the head. It's it's about, can you beat your adversary? Can you deliver software faster than they're delivering software to the field? But more important than just delivering software, can you deliver software that integrates with what the technologies coming out of the commercial markets? if you look at where we are right now, we are in what we like to call acquisition warfare with the Chinese Communist Party at the moment. So the wars of 2025, 2030, 2035, those wars are being won and lost right now, not on the battlefield, but in the startup community, in the venture capital community, at the tech accelerators, tech incubators, at the universities, because the Chinese are deploying capital into the US tech ecosystem and buying up technologies and integrating those technologies into their weapon systems honestly faster than the US government is deploying capital and integrating technologies. And so you have to have software iterating at a speed that when a new technology comes out of the commercial markets, rather than pushing them off and say, ah, yeah, it's not gonna work with our systems. We should be able to modify our systems to bring that stuff in. Now, of course that has to be supported by an acquisition system that is willing to take those risks on startups. Like if, if the acquisition community is not willing to take the risk on a new startup coming out that doesn't have past performance or isn't a sub to a prime or in some cases isn't even US then we're we're missing out on technologies and we're ceding that technological terrain to our adversaries who have no qualms about throwing money into US firms and integrating their products into their weapon systems.
0: Yeah, I think that's a terrific way to kind of pivot to what is going to be a really wonky topic but I think is one that's really important to talk about. When we talk about speed in the acquisition system and a lot of the challenges for a lot of these emerging technology issues, modernization issues, the problems are really systemic. So this is gonna feel a little bit like acquisition one oh one, but I don't think we can get out of this conversation without addressing the lead time and the DOD planning and budgeting cycle, often referred to as the POM for those of you that are not defense walks. But I'd love to hear Courtney maybe to you first and then over to Enrique. How does this, like the system that is established within the Department of Defense, this established planning and budgeting cycle challenge new startups trying to get their product to the DoD or these, you know, pockets of excellence that are trying to get? the latest and greatest technology pushed out continuously to the end user?
3: It's a great question. It's absolutely systemic, like you said, Lindsay, and and one that I'm really grateful is getting more attention over the past few months, both in terms of the department and the authorizers and appropriators on Capitol Hill. I think when it comes to, to startups in particular, you know, there's, there's a variety of different challenges with the programming, planning, budget, execution, PPVE process, but for startups in particular, what we we really focus on as the main challenge is is the length of the budget cycle, which presents you know, which I'm sure your your listeners are familiar with the Valley of Death. Right Within the PPBE process, because funds have to be requested two years in advance of their execution, we create a situation, an artificial situation in, in a lot of ways within Department of Defense where program managers have to effectively predict in advance what software, what capabilities, what innovation is going to be available at the time they have funds to support it. And so that creates a pressure on startups to align their development cycles and availability of their products with availability of funds for the department. And the reality is that given the rate of innovation that's occurring today, those two things are often misaligned. You know, a startup may have received a small business innovation research grant, they've gone ahead and they've matured their capability offering, and they get to the end of that SBIR life cycle And... There's no program office on the back end with funds available to pick them up and integrate them into a program of record. And so you've created a situation where small businesses are unable to get to a sustainable path of revenue. And so what we're seeing within the DOD and I think congressional communities right now is really a focus on how do we lower lower the barrier to entry that the PPBE process presents for small businesses? Are there, there are different mechanisms that we can use to make funding available when innovation is ready? And so that's, that's really the key piece is how can we as a Department of Defense be ready to integrate when the innovation is available and ready for us to, to take advantage of it?
2: I think the the budget process, obviously, everybody understands it does not align at the speed of the startup ecosystem. There's just a massive mismatch in in, in phasing between what Congress provides for funding and the way program offices execute versus the way a venture capitalist is looking to invest in a startup to drive their growth. But I think there are things that we can do to kind of mitigate that. But what it comes down to is incentives. What is the incentive for a program office or for an acquisition officer to work with a startup. And right now there's very few incentives. Their budgets not fungible. In other words, their budgets generally, as they re- get, request their budget, it's for specific purposes. And so the idea of having money available to transition an interesting technology, nobody's gonna save money in their budget to potentially have a transition. So they actually avoid working with these startups because they know there's no way to transition them. Secondly, what you have is program offices that aren't really using the CIVA program and those grants as a key portion of their program of record what happens is startups are basically wandering program offices asking for anybody to be their sponsor for an idea that they have they find a random person in a program office that sponsors and that person may or may not have the authority to even integrate that technology with their program of record with the weapon system and these things fall uh, fall on the floor and so what we need to do is align the incentive structure of How do we measure our acquisition professionals? Are we merely measuring them on their ability to execute their budget at the right glide slope so that they run out of money by the end of the year, perfectly timed? Or are we incentivizing them to maybe try using different contract vehicles? Like to have, I can guarantee there's acquisition program offices that have never used an OTA. Are we incentivizing them to work with the startup ecosystem? And a startup is not the same as a small business. And I think there's a huge confusion on that. There are plenty of small businesses that exist. Some do some fantastic work, but they exist to be small, to do small projects, bespoke activities on behalf of the federal government. That is very different than a commercial startup that is looking to build a product that scales to thousands or millions of users, but that it also might have a DoD use case. And so we have not incentivized people to target that startup ecosystem. And because they don't target startup ecosystem, venture capitalists are less inclined to fund the startups, if the startup is working with the government. So it's like kind of a mix, it's a bad incentives on both sides of the house. And so we need to readdress what are we training our acquisition professionals to do? And I'll make one last comment on this, and it comes in a mindset. At the end of the day, the acquisition professionals need to realize that they are the pointy edge of the spear for a future war against China. And that's not how we train our acquisition workforce. So if you're in an ops community, every morning you have your intel briefing of what i come from an air force background here's what's going on in the russian air force here's what's going on in the chinese air force and you just kind of over time you have a also have a mindset of looking at your adversary i think rarely has an acquisition officer ever woken up and checked an intel report to see what are chinese acquisition officers investing in where is chinese venture capital money going what technologies are they looking at because what happens is we're on the losing end of a technology war fight because we don't even know we're in a fight so if you would change the minds of the acquisition professional and say, you're in a war right now against a counterpart sitting in Beijing, I think you might see a different behavior structure where they're like, wow, China's targeting that startup. Maybe I should target them as well. Maybe I should deploy some capital, keep them in our, in our court. So,
3: Just to you know, piggyback on one thing Enrique said is I, I think this, this conversation around incentives is such an important one. And what goes hand in hand with with incentives right is this idea of of risk aversion and risk avoidance within the Department of Defense and where we really need to get to is creating an an acquisition ecosystem for these professionals to feel like they can use and are familiar enough to use with the breadth of authorities that are available to, to get capability downrange quickly, all right. And so at the beginning of, of our conversation, I mentioned the, the adaptive acquisition framework. And this was really an attempt by OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, to, to equip acquisition professionals with a, a more digestible understanding of the full plethora of authorities out there, whether it's acquisition pathways themselves or actual contract vehicles, FAR or non-FAR based, right? And to equip them to make logical decisions about the type of acquisition pathway they needed to leverage to deliver the type of capability they wanted to deliver on the timeline they need to deliver it, right? And so we've talked a lot about the difference between software timelines and hardware timelines. What I don't think we've achieved at this point with the adaptive acquisition framework is is the correct incentive structure to use all of those authorities. We're talking about them a great deal. We know that they're out there, but what we're seeing both from, I think, leadership within the Department of Defense and from Congress is we're still seeing enormous criticism about the use of some of these authorities, whether it's expanded use of other transaction authorities or maybe just broadly the middle tier of acquisition. I think there is a fear on the congressional side in particular about loss of oversight associated with with some of these more innovative, newer ways of doing business and delivering capability. And so I think just as much as there has to be a mindset adaptation on the side of acquisition professionals, there has to be a a mindset adjustment on the side of our oversight authorities as well. It says, hey, we're going to allow the department to take on a little bit more risk, right? We might need to adapt or have a dialogue around what our oversight mechanisms look like to get the right data and understand whether we're making smart or not smart decisions, but allow our acquisition professionals the latitude to take some of these more innovative approaches.
1: Well, and it sounds like there are a couple of pockets within the department that are doing this really well right now. And Enrique, you were part of Kessel Run, which is one of these pockets that has been really successful at this. How do we scale? How do we take the lessons learned and best practices from these different pilot programs and push them throughout the DoD enterprise?
2: I used to be a believer in the idea of lessons learned and best practices. My, and my view was, you do something well, you spread that knowledge, and other people look and go, yeah, that's a great idea, we should adopt it. I have become much more cynical, and I realized that methodology doesn't work. The DOD is a compliance-driven, policy-driven organization. And unless somebody's directed to do something differently, more than likely they're not gonna do it, because anything other than what you're directed to do, to quote Courtney, it's a risk, and people are unwilling to take risks. I think Congress is less risk-averse. Congress gives a lot of authority to the department. I think the department is self-censoring in how it does its business, because it's, it's worried that Congress is concerned. But it, I've talked to congressional staffers many times, and usually Congress seems pretty open to all these new ideas. So I think the way we get around this, I, two magical words that I think we should be forced into policy. One is precedent and the other is reciprocity. I'll go to the reciprocity one first. And the idea of the reciprocity, of course, is as something has been approved within one organization or one department, that should be accepted in others. And the, the one, the case that always gets the most attention is, is security. The idea that a piece of software has been accredited by one organization, it should be required that other DoD organizations accept that, unless they find something wrong and then there should be some sort of adjudication. But right now there's no adjudication path. The way it works now is each accrediting official and actually lower than accrediting officials, each organization can decide whether they are going to allow a piece of software to field or whether they're gonna accept an ATO. And with this methodology, new security practices are never gonna be adopted. So again, platform one has some fantastic work with accrediting software. And you still see pushback from the services to not accept reciprocity of that software. Reciprocity should be mandated If someone refuses reciprocity, they should have to defend their position to the DOD CIO as to why they refuse to accept the reciprocity from another accrediting official. This is the DOD, we we fight wars based off of trust, yet somehow in our security and acquisitions community, trust does not exist. The idea of precedent in the legal system is that as one authorized person, a judge, makes a decision, it becomes precedent until overturned by a higher court. This should should be how it works in acquisition as well. So the Defense Innovation Unit has done incredible work to show the creative ways in which you can use OTA authorities. Yet every time another organization tries to use other OTA authorities, their leadership starts throwing on top of it FAR regulations, which are not required. What it should be right now is once DIU or a similar organization sets a precedent on how to use a contract vehicle or how to write a contract or how to use authority given by Congress, That should be the default methodology and anyone trying to add extra compliance requirements or extra steps should have to justify it to some sort of adjudicator as to why that is critical. Because the reality is extra steps are put on that don't actually add value. So the way we get around policy problems, the way we get around risk aversion is we need to force precedent into the system and we need to force reciprocity into the system and that has to be downward directed through policy or through law. Because right now it's this idea of lessons learned is not getting the job done.
1: I'm just like struck, like I think this makes so much sense and I'm so glad that you brought this up. One thing, and I, I love Enrique's thoughts on this
3: too, is I, I think those two buckets precedent and reciprocity make, make an enormous amount of sense. And I'm in, I'm in full agreement on the, on the precedent piece in particular, You know, I, I think what's really important for the department is when precedent is set, Right. How do we make that? How do we communicate that to the broader acquisition community? Right. And then make that precedent discoverable to them. How do we make the professionals who work to set that precedent available as subject matter experts or practitioners, right, to the broader acquisition community? And it kind of gets back to this tension where best practices may not necessarily be the best way to scale the approaches that we're talking about. But I do think that we need to think through as a department how we make these approaches accessible, to the broader acquisition community in a way that that isn't templatized, but is really able to be interacted with for, for that acquisition professional's particular use case. Right. Enrique, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but it's something that I know the NSCAI and other organizations have spent an enormous amount of time thinking about, whether it's, you know, knowledge base type software scaled across the department or just some sort of connective tissue that allows acquisition professionals to kind of swap approaches.
2: I think there's a couple things, and I'll just jump back to the legal profession. Not that I have any legal understanding, but I like a lot of TV shows. Uh, but when you look at the law profession, it is a profession where lawyers are expected to understand the law, expect to understand what's going on in various district courts and various federal courts, to understand the precedents being set, and their entire legal cases are based off a of precedent. If the acquisition workforce is a profession and we're a profession of arms, then we should also be as our profession studying what has been done in other parts of the acquisition workforce and we should be writing up our acquisition plans our contracts and other things based off of precedent to say why that what i'm doing is allowed and authorized and use precedence of the basis versus right now we revert back to the far and by reverting back to the far you're forcing people to study a very complex legal and policy documents, and everybody reverts back to what they learned in those first couple weeks at Defense Acquisition University, because that's what they were taught. And so again, a lot of this comes in a mindset that is an acquisition professional, are they going to be the professionals that then take those risks, but they, if you establish precedent, it's no longer really a risk. Now it's the norm. And I want to give one example here. AFWorks. I love AFWorks. They've done some fantastic work. And if you look at what they did a few years ago, they ran their pitch day over in New York where they gave contracts out in less than 15 minutes. I was one of the judges on one of the panels and it was amazing to, to select a company. And by the time I went on break, that company already had a contract. You're like, you're shaking their your hands out in the hallway. The exact same organization a couple years later is now taking six to nine months to close the exact same style of contracts. And so the idea of precedent didn't even hold true within the organization because as new people came in, they questioned how it was allowed in the first place, even though the actual head of acquisitions, Dr. Roper, validated, signed it, authorized it. The head of Air Force Acquisition said this is okay. They set the precedent by letting dozens of contracts. But within a couple years, the exact same organization doesn't even trust their own precedent they set. So until we actually mandate it, there's a lack of trust. And that's what's really hurting the acquisition workforce right now.
0: Well, I think we could certainly keep talking about this for hours. Um, and I believe we may need to have, you know, an episode dedicated to the far and the acquisition system which may not be widely listened to, but you guys have thrown out so many great recommendations, highlighted so many of the challenges that we face and things that you'd like to see progress on. So, before we wrap up the episode, I'd love to turn to both of you as experts in this field. What are you going to be looking for in the coming days, weeks, months, years? that will signal to you either we're going down the right path or we need a course correction. You know, for our audience that is not steeped in this topic every day, help them understand what are those kind of key indicators that you're going to be looking for ahead.
3: I think for for me in particular, I, I am really watching for the organization to create, you know, with the rest of the acquisition ecosystem, an environment that is as friendly as it can be to the type of speed risk-taking experimentation that we've been talking about over the half hour, right? And so we've, we've talked a lot about steps that have been taken both in terms of Acquisition approaches, acquisition pathways, contract vehicles—different things that acquisition professionals can be doing. One of the things that I am really optimistic about is some of this this budget progress that we spoke about. So, in the you know the Senate bill for the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, we have you know a provision in there to stand up a commission on reforming the PPBE process for the Department of Defense. While I don't necessarily believe that's going to yield the near-term change and progress we need to be making, it does make me optimistic that we're starting to address some of these systemic issues that really have prevented us from moving with the speed that we need to, to move with. In addition, I think I'm watching to see if we can achieve scale on, on some of these small pockets of excellence that we've we've spoken about, right? Whether it's, you know, being able to, to move forward with the type of approaches that, that AFWorks was was using at the beginning and scaling that across the enterprise, use of OTAs, engagement with the startup community, right? These are all things that I think we really want to keep track of in terms of metrics, right? And so I think, you know, within the the community to the extent that we can frame the conversation around what is the status quo today, and and where are we going, and really apply some qual and quant metrics there. I think we're going to be we're going to be in a good good position.
2: I'm kind of optimistic about where we're going. Uh, I am uh, occasionally cynical, but overall, I'm optimistic. I'm very happy with the changes I'm seeing in the security community and the operational test and evaluation community. The idea that you can trust software that's been evaluated and vetted, and you can actually push to production at an increasing speed. I think those ideas are really catching on. Where I would love to see us going within the next few years is to be able to have a software discussion that actually talks about software rather than devolving into acquisitions. But that's but I've been on a lot of podcasts, I've been on a lot of panels, and almost every time it always devolves into acquisitions because right now our methodology of acquisitions can't keep pace with how we need to be adopting software. And when I mean adopting, it's not just building. Building's awesome, but we also be able to buy software and rent software and integrate all those three things together to get really holistic ecosystem of capabilities. And so what I would love to see us within the next three years is to be able to go on a panel, go on a podcast and actually talk about software for the sake of software, not acquisitions as it relates to software. And I, I think we're going to get there. I really do. Uh, I'm positive that we're going to get there, but we're just... Not quite there yet. It takes a little more education, takes a few more big wins, but there's some fantastic people out in the ecosystem right now that are delivering great capabilities both inside the DoD and outside the DoD, and I think we're going to get there.
0: Well, thank you both so much for joining. You have, you know, like the the teaser at the end of the Marvel movies, Enrique. I think you have adequately set us up for a season two where we can come back and have an episode with you both on software for software's sake. Though um, I I can't imagine that this is as exciting as sitting in the movie theater while the credits roll to see what movie's coming next. But I look forward um, to to keeping up with both of you as as you continue your work in this field. And thank you so much for, for joining us
1: today. So I have a couple of acronyms I wrote down. So some of these acronyms were stated in the podcast itself, but I don't think all of them were. I wrote them down because I was a bit confused and thought we could clear them up. The first one is something that our listeners are probably familiar with by now, but it is SWAP. So SWAP has two meanings. Oh, no.
0: Well, so it has one primary meaning, size, weight, and power. And when we talk about hardware systems, particular I mean in any hardware system really but particularly in the defense context this comes up a lot because you're always having to think about your size weight and power of your system and you know can it function properly in a combat environment is it rugged does it have the power it needs and when you think about deploying systems into a combat environment swap becomes a big consideration because how are you going to get the power how are you going to if it's a man portable system how's the person going to carry it And so that's what we mean by SWAP. In this episode's context, though, SWAP is a reference to a Defense Innovation Board study called the Software Acquisition and Practices Study. And it was a comprehensive study done by the DIB, Defense Innovation Board. That was one of my
1: acronyms was DIB. So now we've got two down.
0: Yeah. So the DIB published the SWAP study. And I highly commend it to everybody If you're interested in learning about software acquisition in the department, what are the challenges, what are the recommendations, what are we talking about? It's a really excellent study that takes note of where the Department of Defense is in its journey to software, deploying software, developing software. And there's a really nice TLDR, a too-long, didn't-read, two-page summary of the whole swap study that I definitely recommend everybody check out. They actually, I think, just renamed it to the swap flyer because perhaps nobody knew what a TLDR was, but now you know.
1: The acronym was too millennial, Gen Z for the DOD.
0: D-O-D.
1: <laughs> okay, what about the NIST? Is the National Institute of
0: Standards and Technology. It is a laboratory and non-regulatory body that is under the United States Department of Commerce. And it publishes, among many things, but particularly relevant to this conversation, frameworks, standards, and guidance on software, on how to manage risk across products. So I think we talked about the RMF, the Risk Management Framework, which is an accepted framework for managing risk across programs and projects for both hardware and software. What about the NSCAI? So the NSCAI, we have talked about a lot. It is the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and is a uh, congressionally mandated commission to study essentially AI in the United States. They just published their big final report earlier in 2021 and took a very broad view of AI, AI and national security and the United States. So they focus not just on the technology itself, but all of the things around the technology. AI is software, and software acquisition is incredibly important to bringing AI into the Department of Defense, and so that's why we're talking about the AI.
1: So if you haven't listened to our AI ML episode, episode one of this podcast, go back and take a listen. Last acronym I have is CIBR, S-B-I-R? There's a couple different SBIRs. There's a space SIBRS program. Yeah. So Caitlin can tell us all about the
0: (laughs) space-based infrared satellite, but that's not what we're talking about. In, In true DOD and engineering fashion, this is a different SIBR. So this is the Small Business Innovation Research Program. And this is a program that basically aims to bring in small businesses into the federal research and development ecosystem. So it provides, you know, incentives and different kinds of ways to access a different type of company and sort of bring these small actors in to the the DoD R&D ecosystem. I mean, this was a incredibly wonky topic, and we are a very wonky podcast, so that's really saying something. But if we're thinking about how much software and digital technology underpins our national security capability, and if we cannot acquire, develop, and deploy software at a relevant speed, as a nation, we are going to be in big trouble. And so I really appreciated Enrique's framing of this is not just you're a contracts officer and you're going out and, you know, bringing new businesses in or bringing existing businesses in and writing requirements for systems, but you are actively engaged in strategic competition, because all of this is about having to out acquire, out deploy, and get ahead of adversaries in the realm of software. And so I think, you know, for an organization that really thinks about that end user, the warfighter, how is every person contributing to the fight? That includes contracts professionals and acquisition professionals. And I think that's a really it's a really good way to kind of frame how important their role is in this next iteration of competition for the department.
1: Well, and I loved that framing because when we think about the podcast as a whole and all of the different subjects we've covered thus far and we plan to cover in the last couple of podcasts – Acquisition warfare, this this mindset that every piece of the puzzle in DoD, which is a very big and messy, it's like one of those really awful puzzles that is all the same color. It's just a gradient that's really hard to solve. Acquisition is that key piece, that one that you can never find because your dog ate it. But <laughs> maybe that's just me. But to me, this this mindset of acquisition warfare, all of these technologies we've been talking about, and in the various stages that they're at, acquisition and getting this technology into the department and usable has been the crux of the podcast. It's been something that has been this moving thread throughout all of it. And to me, the way that Enrique framed it just really made sense and fit with the broader theme of the podcast of emerging technologies and getting the technologists and the policymakers talking to one another, talking to us and to our listeners.
0: Yeah, I mean, and if we think about how much of kind of a transformational moment this is, when we talk about the acquisition system and the ability to engineer, design, manufacture, and deploy big hardware systems, that was the currency of the realm in the previous decades. It was, how do I design the next generation of aircraft or the next generation of fighter? And how do I get it into production and get it out to the field before our adversaries do. And we got pretty good at that. I thought there was some really interesting research that our colleague Morgan Dwyer did when she was here about the timelines of that hardware acquisition system. And she found counterintuitively, they're actually pretty good. We hear a lot about how big programs get hung up in the acquisition system and their years delayed and over budget. But her research showed that on whole, the system does what it's supposed to. It gets these big platforms through that cycle. So where we are now and why we're talking about software acquisition is because the process of developing and deploying software is fundamentally different from what that system is designed to do. And that's where we're seeing a lot of problems because we're trying to shove software through a hardware system. And we're having to have these conversations about how does the budgeting cycle, which is, I mean, if we're talking about a super wonky topic within a super wonky topic, but we can't ignore The fact that the budgeting cycle runs on two to five year time spans and software is developed and deployed and pushed out on much shorter timelines and the capability is advancing much faster than those timelines. And so we really have to think about how are our systems set up for this new type of acquisition.
1: On this topic, something that I really did like, so I read the swap flyer when you sent it to me, Lindsay, and something really struck with me, and it's on this budgeting thing. It's A2 of the 10 most important things to do starting now. A2 says, create a new appropriation category for software capability delivery that allows software to be funded as a single budget item with no separation between research and development, production and sustainment, which is usually very separate budget in mm-hmm. the way that congress looks at appropriates and funds the department and for software and the timelines that Enrique and Courtney were talking about i mean we're looking at days to weeks multiple iterations and long lasting not something that can be split between the research and development the production and like rolling out of the software and the sustainment. It is all one flowing piece. And so I really liked this piece of the swap study. It made a lot of sense to me. So that's super
0: interesting to bring that up. I'm so glad we get to talk about this because there actually is a pilot program to test out this recommendation. So this is, again, sorry, we're going real wonky here. So in DOD funding, you have what they call colors of money. And you can only use certain colors of money for certain types of activities. And this works relatively well for hardware. You have a very linear development process. You go through a research and development phase. You go through an engineering, manufacturing, development phase. You go through operational testing and evaluation phase.
1: And those are the colors of money. Those yes. different buckets, not like blue for airplanes. Correct. Yep. Not blue for airplanes, blue for R&D. And yes. I can get
0: R&D dollars and put that towards R&D. Where that breaks down for software is exactly like Courtney and Enrique were saying, is is iterative. I'm developing and deploying and pushing updates at the same time. So how do I distinguish between R&D for software and sustainment for software? because the same things are happening at the same time. And so there is a pilot program within the department uh, authorized by Congress called Budget Activity 8. It is essentially the colorless money pilot. And there are a small set of programs that are testing out this assumption that color of money is a big problem for software. And so we're, we're actually trying this out. One of the big topics we talked about is How do you take these little pilots? Say we get to a place where we think the color of money is actually the problem. The colorless money pilot pans out. We see Kessel Run. We see Army Software Factory. And there's a new Navy Software Factory. We see these little pockets of excellence and these pilots. And we say, this is something we want to scale throughout the department. How do we scale? How do we take that from a little insulated, little test project to the entirety of the department. And that is a huge challenge that I don't think we have the answers to yet. And so I'm very excited to see, you know, kind of this this idea of how do you take like a thousand good ideas and see what blooms? Great. How do you then take those ideas and transplant them to your gigantic garden and your big field and now you have a field of all the things?
1: What I also love is that this conversation is again, about the acceptance of risk and the amount of oversight that Congress is putting on the Department of Defense. And like in several other podcast episodes that we've talked about, being able to fail, having the flexibility to learn from those failures and iterate. I mean, these are the things that hardware systems as well are wanting to do. We heard this in the hypersonics discussion, but also is something that is so integral to software that literally this is just not going to happen without this kind of flexibility.
0: And not to, you know, throw all the shade at Congress, because it also came up in this episode, perhaps the department has the authorities it needs. And is the department executing on those authorities that have already been granted to it consistently? And this is where I was really excited to hear Enrique's concept of precedent and reciprocity. If I have an authority to bring a startup or a small software company in and I can bring them in on a rapid timeline and I can get them that infusion of cash that they need, why can't I do that every time? That should set a precedent, not just within the armed service that did it, but perhaps across the department as a whole. And so I think there's something that's really interesting to think about that. And this is a really simplistic example, but it would make a huge difference. So when I was working in engineering. We would often have to do software development in a SCIF, in a secure, closed information facility. It is not fun to do software development in a SCIF because a lot of software development, particularly if you're coding in modern languages like Python, requires you to be able to access the body of knowledge that is out there you know, while you're doing your work. It also is a very collaborative process, and there are enterprise management tools that help that collaborative process. So for example, we use the Atlassian Suite. So my software developers will know, you know, Jira. I assign a ticket, it goes out to a coder, they execute on it, they close it, they move on. It's just part of how you develop software. There's also model-based engineering software that we use to build not just tracking requirements in say a Word document, but tracking requirements in a model itself so that when I update one part of my system model, it updates through the rest of it. And that traceability and that update is really huge. Doing all that in a SCIF means that that has to be approved for installation on a government computer. I worked at one company where that was approved. We had the software development tools that we needed. They weren't connected to the internet, of course, but they were connected in a way that my development team could collaborate and work together. I went to another job and was like, well, where's my enterprise management software, you guys? And they're like, well, we can't get this in- approved for installation on a government computer. We can't do that. And I was like, I just had it a month ago.
1: The authorities and- are there. The processes are there. And what I really liked about what Corne and Enrique said is that Sometimes the department is self-censoring because they're worried about Congress or they're worried about something else. And in fact, they have all these tools. They can make this happen. And if it happens in one place, like in your case with your, you know, let's say job one, then why can't it happen with job two? That's the precedent and reciprocity argument that Enrique made that just is – Logically makes so much sense. Yeah,
0: he's not a lawyer, but I bet he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think there is something worth exploring there, and so that just made me really excited. And even to be able to trace that back to like, it would have been so nice at Job Two to have my Jira ticketing system to do my software development. And how do we think about bringing that to the department as a whole? And I think his example of bringing on small businesses and having that precedent for this is a way we can contract with these new players. I think is really interesting. I mean, and and ultimately, you know, you'll get in this conversation, people will say like, do you just want to blow it all up and start over or do we bolt on? And I am ultimately a pragmatist and a realist. It may be really nice to say we're going to blow it all up and we're going to start over with a new acquisition system, but realistically, that's not going to happen. And so I think we have to approach how do we address our acceptance and tolerance for risk? How do we use the authorities we have and start identifying what other authorities do I need? And then I can go pursue those, but like, perhaps we have the things we need. We just have to think about them a little bit more critically. The one caveat is, you know, and and we talked about this during the episode was, what do we do about this five-year planning cycle? And that may be one that requires a little bit more, you know, rejiggering it for the uniqueness of the software development cycle. So, remains to be seen. Season two. Season two. (laughs) As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Visit our show page at org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests and any documents and reports we've referenced. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in two weeks.